This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by HostGator.com. Do you need to launch your own website? If you're looking for one of the easiest ways to register, host, and build your site, you should check out HostGator.com. They have tools to help you get started immediately, whether you're transferring a domain or building your site from scratch. So, you know, all you fans who want to open up, here's a look at my robotguts.com or drcorbyforever.net or kenissecretlyarobot.org. You can just head over to HostGator.com and have that up before we're done with today's episode. Speaking of DrCorbyForever.net, a .net address is the best way to get a good domain name these days. Grab your .net today. It gets better, though. HostGator has 24-7 tech support on the phone, live chat, or email, and you can choose from shared or dedicated servers. All that plus packages that include unlimited storage and unlimited bandwidth. Order now with the coupon code MISSIONLOG, and you'll get 30% off at HostGator.com. Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 67, The Empath. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. This is the show where we pick apart every episode of Star Trek in the attempt to analyze the morals, meanings, and messages. Today's episode, The Empath. Ken, I feel your pain. Now, hold on, John. Don't give away the review of the show yet. We have to save that for the end. No, 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 no. I I would never give it away until the end. I'm I'm just saying, Ken, I feel your pain. I'm getting into the spirit. All right, I feel like I feel like you may. I, I know you're saying that's not what you're doing. I feel like you may have done a little bit of a spoiler. I almost want to go back and apologize for saying welcome <laughs> to this episode. I actually want to start off the show with, well, you must have done something bad. So let's get to it. Uh, oh, spoiler! I know. Okay. Yeah, that's right. right there, there, there's actually here. I'll go ahead. Let me go ahead and do another quick sort of spoiler. Mm-hmm. As with almost every episode of Star Trek, there is actually stuff here. Yeah. But seriously, if you want us to watch this one so you don't have to, that's who we are. That's the kind yeah. of thing. That's honestly the kind of thing that I think, uh, you know, a, an alien race like maybe a Vian or something like that would appreciate. We will watch the Vians <laughs> and tell you what we thought. Go ahead, John. I'm sorry. You, you know, well, it, probably had something you, to though. say. What? Well, here's the thing. As we've learned in doing uh, the however many episodes of Mission Log, we're now up to episode 67. No matter what episode we do and no matter how we talk about it, what our opinions are, there are always those who will disagree with us. Yes. Maybe have a different take on it. Yes. Um, so, yeah. And uh, uh, so we, we don't want to spoil our what we're actually thinking about the show because I think it was more important is how we analyze the show like you said true. we're looking for the morals meanings and messages so that is the attitude we'll take as we trudge on and uh, pick <laughs> apart the empath if you say trudge you're doing it again you see? <laughs> okay. i'm just saying here's the other thing okay so we say that there's always i, I wouldn't know i mm, always mm-hmm. might be strong but it seems like there is always there is at least almost always some message, some moral, some idea that you can pull out and, uh, and, and, and redeem no matter what else happened in the episode. Uh, the other thing that there always is is trivia. 
Oh, you're so right. Yes. Well, thank you for that introduction. Uh, we do have trivia for the empath. This episode is written by Joyce Muscat, and it was recommended by Bob Justman. So um, he got the story idea. He recommended that it be purchased and produced into a, an episode of Star Trek. Wait, can I, this do, is, can I do something terrible? Yeah, go ahead. Go so ahead. Bob Justman suggested it, but then he decided it needed some Muscat love. Oh. <laughs> I said it was terrible. Yeah, All yeah. Right, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, thank you for doing that. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is the one and only professional writing credit that we have for Joyce Muscat. She was a fan of the show and submitted her story idea just like a handful of others back in the day, most famously, of course, David Gerald. Um, very few changes were made from her original outline uh, to what made it to air. There were a few details about the planet and the peril that they're in. Uh, McCoy was strapped to a chair rather than suspended from the ceiling. So there, there are little details that changed, but overall the story stayed pretty much intact. Now, Catherine Hayes, who played Jem, there's not a ton of biographical data on her, uh, but she is primarily a TV actor. Huge number of credits in her long career. Uh, and in fact, for nearly 40 years, she played the character Kim on As the World Turns. Um, she also appeared in an episode of Night Gallery titled She'll Be Company for You, starring Leonard Nimoy. Now, The Empath is directed by John Ehrman who got a very young start in showbiz. He directed an episode of The Outer Limits in 1963. He was born in 1935, so he was a very young director working on that show. Um, in The Outer Limits, he directed an episode called Nightmare, which featured aliens torturing humans on a bare minimalistic set. So a little bit of inspiration there. Um, and by the way, who was the assistant director on that episode? Well, it was none other than Bob Justman. So another connection between those two episodes. Ken, did you notice that very mod-looking couch uh, where they first find Jem? Did it kind of look to you like a giant agonizer? No, but you asked if I noticed it. I mean, seriously, when that came on screen, it was yeah. almost like there was absolutely nothing else on screen. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, uh, but it, it looks like a giant agonizer, and um, that, that, apparently that was on purpose. So, uh, or maybe it's just a shape they really liked and a color scheme that they really liked. Um, this was the last episode shot by Jerry Fennerman, and you may remember that I mentioned the shift that happened during uh, the Tholian Web, and that was actually the next episode to be filmed when Ralph Sinensky was fired. Al Francis was then moved to DP, so Jerry Fennerman uh, was the uh, he was the DP for this full episode, only for uh, part of the Tholian Web. Um, and then finally, uh, DeForest Kelly has said that this was his favorite episode. So we'll be able to discuss uh, this episode's merits after we're done with the recap. I'm sorry. Hang on one second. Mm -hmm. DeForest Kelly said that this was his favorite episode. Yes. Yes, he did. You know, there have been many times in doing the original series that I have wished that DeForest Kelly were still here to interview, which is no yeah. guarantee that we would be able to. But right. there are many times that I've wished... Never more than hearing <laughs> right. that from you just now. Yeah. Black Box Community Theater is proud to present sort of an episode of Star Trek. Let's let Ken tell us more. Prologue. 
Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to find out what happened to a group of people sent to study a star that's about to go supernova. No one's heard from them in a while, and the Enterprise triumvirate finds the research station dusty and full of cobwebs. Scotty hails him from the Enterprise. This system star is getting really violent. Kirk says he should get the Enterprise as far away as he can. The three of them will stay here to see what happened to the scientific expedition. With the Enterprise safely away, Kirk and Pals begin their investigation. Conveniently, the first data card they find shows the last moments of the scientists in the research station. One says he can't stand being there, the other quotes scripture. Then both hear a noise and wink out of existence. Seconds after viewing the recording, Spock, Bones, and Kirk hear the same noise as well. One by one, each winks out of existence as we head to the opening credits. Act 1. The three men wake up on a dark soundstage. I'm sorry, the three men wake up in a dark area far beneath the planet's surface. Spock says they were beamed there by an alien technology similar to the Federation's own transporters. Bones is concerned about a cut on Kirk's forehead, but he says he's fine. On sensors, Spock spots a humanoid. Not a human, but a humanoid. A short wander through a dark soundstage. Sorry, underground. And the men find what appears to be an unconscious woman. She wakes and begins an interpretive dance. Spock says she can't be native to this planet. Kirk demands to know whether she's responsible for bringing them here. She does not answer, but recoils in fear. Bone says that, let's call her Jem, cannot speak. Never been able to. Probably a normal thing for her, let's call them people. Kirk prepares to question her again when all of a sudden two aliens blink into the scene. Picture a cross between the Talosians from The Cage and Pruneface from Dick Tracy. Kirk goes to identify himself, but they know who he is. They are the Viands. And that's about all we'll get out of them right now. Well, that and do not interfere and delay us no longer. Might help if they said what they were trying to do, but whatever. Kirk moves to explain their situation and is forced back by one of the Viand handheld weapons. Doesn't really hurt him, just shoves him back. Kirk tries to explain again, this time with Phaser in hand. He seriously starts to explain the Prime Directive to them, but the Viands use their handheld what's-it to relieve him of his phaser and trap the three men in some sort of force field. It's an interesting trap. The Viands helpfully explain that the more resistance the three men offer, the stronger the force field becomes. Gee, I wonder if that information will be helpful later. With the enterprising officers safely caged, the Viands proceed to examine Jem. They deem whatever they're examining sufficient, then disappear, releasing the men from the force field as they go. Kirk puts Spock to work looking for an exit. Jem seems to have been knocked out by the Vian's examination, though she quickly awakens. A little more interpretive dance, and she notices the cut on Kirk's forehead. Then it's gone from Kirk's forehead, appears on her forehead, and is gone again. She's healed Kirk, though at a bit of cost to her. Bone says she must be an empath. Her nervous system is so sensitive, so highly responsive, that she can actually feel our emotional and physical reactions... They become part of her. Spock's back. He's found a bunch of electronic stuff. Stuff his tricorder did not pick up before. A short walk through the dark, and there's a whole lot of equipment. Oh, and the missing scientists. Each in glass cases, both with a case of the dead. Act 2. Hey, says McCoy, look over here. There are three more glass cases. One for each of us. Got our names on them and everything. Things are going really well. In Pops of Ion, he says some further tests are necessary. Hey, yeah, says Kirk, but first, about our dead guys. We didn't kill them. Their own imperfections did. They were unfit subjects. Now let's get to those tests, huh? 
Kirk starts lecturing the Vian about the imminent destruction of his planet. This distracts him enough that Spock is able to nerve-pinch him and relieve him of his weapon. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Jem head for the surface. No sooner have they left than the Vian comes to, apparently having faked unconsciousness. He and his compatriot keep tabs on the foursome as they head to the surface. Topside, it is super stormy. They approach the scientific outpost where Scotty and the search party are waiting. But Kirk spots the Vians. He sends the others ahead and moves to intercept the Vians. They marvel at the strive-to-live exhibited by the humans as they debilitate Kirk. As Spock and McCoy approach the outpost, Scotty and the searchers vanish. Spock suspects they were never actually there to begin with. Jem runs to them and motions back to where she and Kirk were separated. The three go back in time to see Kirk chosen by the Vians. They need but one specimen, and he'll do nicely. Kirk agrees as long as the Vians agree to let the others go. They say they will, then they do not. An angry Kirk charges the Vians and is made to disappear. On board the Enterprise, Scotty and Sulu discuss how long the solar storm is taking to dissipate. Longer than we thought. Okay, good chat. Back on the planet, the Vians are full-on torturing Kirk as Jem looks on. They've got him hanging by his wrists. He wants to know what they want to know, but they don't want to know anything. Kirk and his people are far too primitive to have anything to offer. Also, they didn't kill the other scientists, okay? Their own fears did that. Now we want to study your courage and strength of will. Why are you killing me? asks Kirk. Tell you what, say the Vians. Live and find out. The Vians go back to torturing Kirk, which really bums Jem out. Back beneath the planet, Spock and McCoy can't find their way out. Good thing, too. Just then, Kirk and Jem are blinked back into their room. Trapped in the force field again, the two men can't help Kirk. Jem starts to, but runs from him in fear. Bones yells to her, help him! Don't be afraid to help him! That does it. She comes back, takes Kirk's wounds away from him, onto herself. Then they disappear, but again at a cost to Jem. Free to the force field, McCoy checks both Kirk and Jem out. Both are fine, and did I explain the whole empath thing earlier? Well, let me do it again, says Bones, who proceeds to lay out the whole empath thing again. Maybe for people who just tuned in. There is a bit more this time, though. Spock notes the fear Jem exhibited before helping Kirk this time. McCoy suggests maybe she doesn't know Kirk well enough yet to offer up her life for him. Anyway, don't worry about that. The instinct for self-preservation would probably keep her from killing herself and saving him. Also, Kirk has the bends. Because, why not? Spock thinks he may be able to use the Vian weapon he got earlier, so he'll get to work on that. In pop the Vians. For the next round of interrogation, they'll need one of Kirk's men. Being the captain, he'll have to choose which one. Oh, and factors to consider, there's an 87% chance that the interrogation will kill McCoy, but a 93% chance that it'll drive Spock insane permanently. Act 3. Spock is working away at the Vian weapon. He tells McCoy that he's left notes on how to do what he's going to do. You know, in case he ends up crazy. McCoy wouldn't be able to do it, but McCoy and Kirk probably could together. McCoy argues, saying that he should be the one to go, not Spock, but Kirk stops that discussion. The decision is his, not theirs. Kirk is seriously tired, though. McCoy takes it upon himself to incapacitate Kirk with a hypo. This leaves Spock in command, thus the decision of who to send to the Vians will be his. He chooses himself, of course. Or he would have, had McCoy not incapacitated him with a hypo. There is a moment right before that happens where Jem, the empath, feels Spock's pain and worry over Jim. 
That's nice. Then the hypo. And the return of the Vians. They've got bones hanging by his wrists and being tortured in no time. Awake again, Kirk berates Spock for letting McCoy do what he did, but Spock says, Hello, hypo. Anyway, he's figured out the Vian weapon. Only it's not a weapon. It's sort of a processor for mental energy. So he'll work on making it work for him. Whatever this is all about, Kirk and Spock figure it all centers on Jem. Anyway, Spock's got the Vian technology working. Probably. Should be good for one beam out. Hopefully. It would get them to the Enterprise. Likely. Though Kirk says they'll go help McCoy instead. A quick blip to the lab and there's McCoy, hanging from the ceiling and nearly dead. Act 4. Jem is horrified. Spock and Kirk get McCoy down and examine him. Spock says there's no hope. Kirk says Spock can't know that. He's not a doctor. But McCoy is a doctor, and he agrees with Spock's assessment. You know what he could use? An empath. But she is really freaked out. She is not going to risk her life to save his. And that's what this whole thing has been about. The Vians pop in, trap Kirk and Spock in a force field, and explain. They know the star system is going to go supernova. The Vians can save one of the many inhabited planets in the system. Hers is probably the one, but they have to make sure that they are worthy of survival. Like, she has to be willing to lay down her life for another. She saw you guys willing to do it, so let's see if that took. If she does lay down her life, her planet lives. If not, well, not. Jem seems to pass the test. She goes to help McCoy. The thing is, in doing so, she will die, a result that McCoy cannot allow. He pushes Jem away. Hey, remember that thing where if they struggle, the force field gets stronger? Spock surmises that if they go almost completely inert, the force field should weaken. They do, it does, and they are able to weasel out of the force field's grasp. Kirk insists that the Vians save McCoy, but they say no. The test must be complete. Jem must be willing to lay down her life. Um, what episode of Star Trek were you watching, asks Spock. Did you miss the part where she tried to save McCoy and he pushed her away? To offer is not proof enough, says one of the Vians, which is a slow pitch straight down the middle for the captain to knock out a Kirk speech. If death is all you understand, here are four lives for you. We will not leave our friend. You've lost the capacity to feel the emotions you brought Jem here to experience. You don't understand what it is to live. Love and compassion are dead in you. You're nothing but intellect. Wow, what jerks we've been, huh? The Vian Hill McCoy and seem to agree to save the truly outrageous Jem and her people. Back aboard the Enterprise, the crew engages in roughly one minute of discussion about the nature of chance and the importance of emotion over logic where the Vians are concerned. There's a tiny bit of ribbing the Vulcan. And at long last, the end. Bravo, Ken. Bravo. Uh, nah, I, you, don't even. Yeah. No, you, you really, uh, you took one for the team there. I'm <laughs> impressed. Um, good job recapping. Um, <laughs> as we do every week, you know, some of the immediate observations that come to mind. And I think the first thing that came to mind out of your read there, out of your recap, 
is that Scotty and the Searchers is a great band name. <laughs> it wouldn't be bad. That would be really, really good. And um, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I, I would never be one to argue with a doctor, particularly not Dr. McCoy. But uh, the Benz is a condition in which nitrogen comes out of solution in the bloodstream, usually due to an extreme change in pressure, causing severe pain, possible disfigurement and death. That, that's the same Benz that uh, McCoy is talking about. Well, he he says he he says he doesn't know why it's happening. Okay, okay. Yeah. So that's it's good. Just, it is. It's just adding insult to injury. You got this. That's too. no. That's your science yeah. catch-all. I mean, that's right. it. It's like, oh, here's why you're yeah. sick. I don't know why why you're why. sick, but here's why you're sick. So let's move there on. There you go. Yeah. Yep. You could lose <laughs> right. some time in a decompression chamber, but yeah, mostly you seem okay. <laughs> right. I didn't. I know less. I mean, from from the paragraph that you just said, or you know, however mm-hmm. long that was about the mm-hmm. Benz, you obviously know more about the Benz than I do. Great Radiohead album. Aside from yeah. that, I got no <laughs> okay. clue. Good. Um, Good. But yeah, I thought the decompression chamber wasn't like a. You know, you and I actually know a dive guy. We should ask him sometime. We do. We <laughs> sometime should. we should ask him. Um, you know, should Kirk have been able just to snap out of the Benz like that? But you know, we'll we'll have to we'll have to. We'll have to do that some other time. Um, more excellent spy cam footage in this episode with the two lab workers. Yep. You know, I, I mean, I honestly think that at some point we'll have to do a whole episode or a supplemental about privacy issues in the <laughs> Star Trek. Um, because it, it's interesting, you know, everybody seems to be totally okay with the idea that you can bring up a nicely edited multi-camera uh, shoot of anything that you do at any time. Um, I've got a friend who theorizes that privacy is just sort of an experiment of the last century or more, mm-hmm. uh, but it's over now. And uh, Star Trek seems to be okay with this. Yeah, you know, it, maybe it's very prescient in that idea. It's it's know? it's quite possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm curious yeah. about. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I have an observation or two to throw in myself. Yeah, no, sh- there's something there's something wacky going on. I mean, and maybe it's because he's got the bends. I can't remember if he already had them at that point or if he <laughs> right. didn't yet. Yeah. But the whole thing where they're in the force field and and Kirk says, "I can't seem to stand up." Right. I, I really was expecting Spock to say, "Probably because you already are." Because he, he, he in <laughs> yeah. fact, um, was you know, and I understand you don't want to rewrite the script on the set. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. did did Shatner not say, okay, so should I be sitting down for this line? Because I'm complaining that I can't do what blocking has me doing. Right. Yeah. Right. No, apparently it's just not. just a little, little oversight. Read it yeah. as written, mister. <laughs> right. You're not paid to write. All right. Speaking of that force field, by the way, yeah. um, that, that's that's just the worst. I, I just well, I don't know. Where I, uh, well, it was was Spock? Uh, was he mind melding with the force field to understand? Oh, it clearly <laughs> is uh, is no. working on our emotional energy. So if we go inert, we'll just be able to walk out of it. I mean, that that really just seems like we are running out of time here. Can we, we need to get them out of the force field? I, I feel like we've probably already done this, but can okay. we go ahead and, and, and let people know that we're not necessarily the biggest fans of this episode? How dare you, Ken? And there's a re- well, there's a reason I want to go ahead and say it. Every okay. time we saw Spock not talking, yeah, I, I felt like what I was actually looking at was Nimoy going, seriously, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't feel like I didn't feel like I didn't feel like Spock was mind melding with the force field. I felt like Nimoy was standing there going, "Did I? Am I missing pages? Because I don't know. I'm not sure." 
Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> good, good point. Um, you mentioned that the, uh, the aliens, the, the Viens, the VNs, set up Kirk for the Kirk speech. Yes, Just, they did. He's ready to go. And I feel like it's another one of those where we've had the great Kirk speeches in the past. And here we get about two sentences of a Kirk speech. And it, I, he doesn't necessarily phone it in as an actor. I feel like the episode phones in the Kirk speech. Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing. It, this is not as long or as moving a Kirk speech. <sighs> Maybe we should save this because okay, I, right. I actually do want to come back. To, this reminds me of another Kirk speech that we had recently, and I want to I come back and hit that later. Okay, um, I'm, I'm fine with that. I do also yeah. want to hit the viands, by the way. Um, no. I know, yeah. and the, my favorite note. Oh, we can't do that yet. We have to do that later. All right. Okay. <laughs> Your note about this episode honestly got me through this episode. Okay. You were right. the wind beneath my wings, my friend. You're um, welcome. I love how the viands keep saying they didn't kill the last two scientists. It's, that's <laughs> just awesome. Absolutely no culpability whatsoever. It's like it's like if I shot no. you, and then I'm like, I didn't, I didn't kill you. You just didn't get out of the way of the bullet. You know, the vines are all like, yeah, they just they just couldn't take it. They they weren't strong enough for what we were dishing out, so they died. That was them. Yeah, <laughs> very true, dude. Really? Because I'm I'm pretty sure if you hadn't, you know, kept them here and run tests on them, around them, near them, however you want to, you know, phrase it. Also, they seem to not be clear most of the way through the episode whether they were testing uh, Gem or uh, testing the the. The, the the people from the Enterprise. I know in the end they decided, no, no, we're testing Jem. Uh, but you know, right. the whole time they're like, yeah, we got to see how much you can take. Well, well, that said, they didn't seem to really have the whole thing planned out for you. Even when Kirk yeah. asks a very straightforward question, if I'm about to die, can you please tell me what I'm dying for? Yeah, and well, their answer was just the biggest, huh? Don't die what? and you'll find out. <laughs> what? <laughs> that, was, that was actually awful. <laughs> Just awful. Don't Just die, a- and, you, and you'll know why we're killing you. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, some good moments, though, between Spock and McCoy that didn't have to hit you over the head. I, I felt like they had some really nice moments. Everybody kind of points to McCoy saying that Spock has good bedside manner. There was a moment, and it worked on its own. Um, and, it, you know, there's Bones living up to the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. And uh, that that was what he chose to do when it came to Jem. Yeah. Well, there's also Bones doing the Bonesian oath of like, you know, anybody got a vein? <laughs> <laughs> right. Here. Exactly. Look over there and hypo and look over there and hypo. I was really right. kind of I mean, it really is. It is beautiful, actually, when he just goes straight for the hypo. I mean, based on, you know, the stuff yeah. that we've discussed over this uh over the uh, over the run of TOS that you and I have been looking at, right? Uh, kind of neat to hear the Ritter scale. I've had uh, you know the the Three's Company theme in my head mm-hmm. uh, pretty much every time I've watched this episode now, and right. and I realized as I was going through it that you know to 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 to, to reduce it just to the Three's Company theme uh, seemed unfair. It really thought I should be looking at eight simple rules for getting Gem to lay down her life. When it comes to the empath, I'm like Shaka Khan. I feel for you. Also, I think I love you. All right. So, Ken, we're, we're going to play the uh, the most obvious card here. For me, the, the thing that I think 
frustrated me early on. Um, the name of the episode is The Empath. Mm-hmm. McCoy says more than once that she is an empath. Mm-hmm. It has made very clear what her empathic capabilities are. Empathy is, by definition, what makes her what she is, mm-hmm. when we refer to Jim. Did the mad scientist aliens not get that? Because I'm trying to understand all the theatrics behind what they're doing. Like, she, she's kind of already, uh, shall we say, emotionally compromised. Uh, she, she's an, an emotional creature. She's already sort of tuned into what is going on around her and I would assume has some understanding of uh, the difference in life and death, that those are two different concepts. And she volunteers very early on to help them, even with the most minor of uh of cuts you know and kirk has the uh the the cuts on his arms and all it, it, she's there to help out so well i, I, I to me it's a, it's a very it, you can say it's a short step or a long step but i feel like it's part of her nature to understand and give of herself to other people but that's not what they're looking for they they want her to give everything and that's the thing that's kind of weird to me about there's a lot that's weird to me about this episode, but I don't really get that. I don't get that. <laughs> I guess that's really it. I don't get that. So it seems like what they're really looking for is, and there's religion, it seems to me, or religious overtones or undertones or side tones or whatever. There's a lot of religiosity mm-hmm. uh, throughout this episode. They are really looking for Jem to be Christ-like. They are looking mm-hmm. for her mm-hmm. to lay down her life for anyone else. I mean, and that's the thing. It's not like, you know, oh, well, her mom's going to die, so she's going to run in front of a bus to save her mom or, you know, somebody she knows. It's, it's, it's like she needs to be willing to sacrifice herself for anybody, for her entire race to survive. I mean, because everything else you're talking about as far as the viands are concerned is kind of a parlor trick, right? <laughs> yeah, okay, she can heal a cut. Big deal. I can heal a cut. She can heal, you know, uh, she can heal uh, whatever, um, you know, the, 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 the internal damage even. Um, but when it gets too much, she might die. And so the question is, will she go ahead and do what needs to be done to save somebody else at the risk of her own life? thing that I don't understand is how is – so that's, that's really what a society has to do to, to be able to survive? And can we also go back to, you know, the Vians? They, they say there are a number of inhabited worlds in the system that are going to be destroyed by the sun. Oh, but we can only save one. So we're going to make sure that it's worthy of surviving. And the only thing that would make it worthy of surviving is would one random person from this society lay down their life or another random person from this from any other society? Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, so so they're trying to make somebody who's sort of Christ-like, but they're not Christ-like themselves because Jesus wouldn't have asked like, okay, well, I'll die for you, but are you worthy of it? I mean, that was the whole <laughs> point, right? Jesus dies for you because you're not worthy of it. But the Vians, right. Vians aren't going to be those guys. <laughs> well, like, if I look, if I'm going to save you, you're going to have to be worth saving, which, I, yeah. you know, I haven't read the New Testament in a while, but I don't remember that being one of the tenets of Christ. Well, here's the thing. From my perspective, they're, they're talking about saving, you know, one of a multitude of worlds. Right. Uh, and, and I'm just thinking, if you, if you go down the list, okay, here's the world with uh, Jem and her people, and they have this fantastic empathetic ability, which also seems to be kind of an emotional ability. And, and by the way, she seems kind of benevolent and kind of scared of the whole thing. Yep. And then maybe we work our way down the row of planets and we've got 
just some like terrible places to live. Just, just people who are awful to each other constantly, like bickering all the time. Like it, it seems like it, it should have been a pretty easy thing to understand that Jem and her people are worth well, saving. But but here's here's where it comes down to, and I'll just go ahead. And I'll read my note that that I wrote about this because I think it's the one. These aliens are the worst. They. They are really the worst in all possible ways. Okay. Um, all right. They torture for a scientific experiment. Yeah. They've already killed a couple of people. They yeah. have no clue what they're doing, the emotional impact of it, until Kirk clues them in. They have to have Kirk to do this for them. Uh, they are powerful, and they are truly idiotic. Uh, they, they tortured McCoy, and it's all to decide who gets to live or die on another world uh so they understand the difference of life and death just go help gems people you have the theatrics you have the space you have the little uh their little weapons that they they can clearly move from one planet to another just go help you know yeah they they don't have their own prime directive apparently right um i move gems people to to amaranth and they can start their own tribe and they can you know Go help out what remains of the tribe that Kirk helped destroy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I put it this way. Okay, so you don't if like I, I no, <laughs> if I were the captain of a starship, yeah. because that might happen. And if I were out on my first mission, okay, <laughs> and if I met these guys first, yeah, and, and went through this whole torture thing, and then let's say next week I ended up at Talos Four. I'm done. I throw the anchor out the side of my ship and I stay there because I could get along with the Talosians just great after meeting these guys. All right. I, I'd be like, great. Throw me in a cage. <laughs> let's let's do this. I am here for eternity. Let's let's go over a few things. First of all, you are never going to be a starship captain if you're looking for the anchor. Okay. Well, that's the, the metaphorical. That's anchor. number one. <laughs> They're actually, and and I and I wonder. Let me tell you a story. I'm from, mm-hmm. I'm from the South, and that's how we do things. We tell stories. You're from the South, so you know I that, am. right? Yeah. yeah, okay. All right. Um, my first job, my first full-time job in radio was at a sports station. Now, what's funny about that to me is I hate sports. <laughs> I know nothing about sports either. Yeah, Good. yeah. Well, Good. No, it, it's, no, it wasn't I didn't know anything about it. It's just that I hated it. Right. I have since come to enjoy hockey, and um, that's about it. I like all the winter sports, actually. So... I came while I was working at the sports station to really appreciate a lot about sports. Still didn't enjoy it, but, mm. but, but I started watching it and I started paying attention to it and I learned about different players and I learned about different teams because I figured if I'm going to be there, I really, I really should try not to hate it, right? Yeah. Second or third viewing of The Empath, I start pulling out stuff that it feels to me is actually big, important stuff because the first time I watched it, I came away thinking, wow, I didn't know they made a seven-hour episode of Star Trek (laughs) until I watched this episode. Yeah. Uh, So about the third time I'm watching it, I think, I start likening the Vians to sort of the difference between the Old Testament God and and the New Testament God. They actually seem to me to be that crux. They seem to be to be that moment. And forgive me, I'm coming at this from a total Christian, you know, angle, which mm-hmm. is my upbringing. I know sure, yeah, uh, okay. a lot of uh, Jewish listeners listening might not be so hip to the idea that I'm talking about, you know, the Old Testament versus the New Testament God. But that's where I come from. So there we are. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they, the Old Testament God seemed to demand a lot from people without really offering so much. He made the earth, sure, but if you crossed him, man, he would just screw you up. You know, lay waste mm-hmm. to a city, turn you to a pillar of salt if you do what he didn't say, run you up the side of a mountain and, and tell you that he's going to make you kill your kid. Don't worry, he's not really going to. You're not going to know that until you have a knife, like, you know, ready to kill your kid. Um right. Wipe out the entire planet with a flood? Sure, I could do that, because seriously, you people are wicked, and, and we just need to go ahead and start over. And and that's sort of, it seems to me, where the viands are. They're like, you need to learn love. You need to learn love. I'm not going to teach it to you, but seriously, <laughs> pick up on this. And Kirk then shows up and is like, hey, you want people to learn about love? Try being loving, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's sort of the that's sort of the turning point. Now, there are things in this episode that make me wonder if, I mean, there's a bit of a Christian allegory, but not a direct one. Do you know what I mean? Like like when Kirk is hanging from the chains, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's not hanging like you would, you know, if you were really hanging from chains with your, you know, arms crossed above your head and, and limp. He's hanging in sort of like a cross position. But you get that even more when they take the close up of Kirk and all you can see are his arms sort of outstretched, but you don't see that he's being held by chains. Right. He's got sort of the crucifixion, you know, thing going right there. Um, you talked earlier about the couch looking like an agonizer. Go back and look mm-hmm. at the couch again. It's got like a long place for the body and for some reason, inexplicably, two places for arms if you were going to lay with your arms, you know, pointed out, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As if you were laying on a cross. There's a there's a lot of and, – and, and of course, the biggest one is they're trying to get Jem to lay down her life, for other people, people she doesn't even know. And right. that's what's going to make them worthy. Now, the weird thing is, okay, so you get all of this sort of religious stuff. I go back again to, I guess it was Mark Altman, to what Mark Altman said. When Star Trek doesn't have anything to talk about, it talks about Shakespeare. I kind of <laughs> feel like there's a lot of like religious stuff thrown in here without a real religious message. I mean, it feels well, like all this stuff is being like laid on there to make it seem important. Yeah. But it's not really important. It's just a bunch of stuff. I, I'm so glad you said you said that because I was about to say exactly the same thing. Okay. Um, we we even go so far as to kind of bookend the show. We have an opening line and a closing line. Well, not not opening line, but early in the show and late in the show. Psalms ninety five uh, verse four. Right. Yes. We, yeah. we have that, and then and then we end with Matthew. And I thought, okay, well, well, this is interesting that we have these lines here, and I think the parallels that you're drawing are are very interesting. But I also feel like this is not an episode that is dealing with the idea of religion or religiosity or even the Bible or Christianity. I just feel like those are more literary tropes Mm -hmm. that show up in this episode. Yeah. And and the problem is like you could do that and you could do that very well in another episode. And you could even do another episode that is about those things. It's just unfortunate that this episode is not a very strong episode. So even when you put the veneer of having these bigger ideas there, they seem like they're tacked on and they just don't work. Yeah, I'm with you there 100%. I mean, even with the Psalm uh, 95 verse 4 thing, mm-hmm. it's it's just sort of a reference to what's happening, right? The guy is underground saying he can't be there anymore, and then there's a bit of an earthquake. Yeah. And then uh, the other scientist you know, quotes Psalm 95 verse 4, for the Lord is great, uh, is a great God. 
and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. And the guy's like, oh, he must have heard you because in his hand are the deep places of the earth, right? You go like two more verses into that. Um, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the Mm -hmm. provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. That one actually makes sense for this episode, right? Because (laughs) they're trying to – because first of all, you got the Vians, you know, who aren't – who are like – they actually say that McCoy's death does not matter. They're trying to teach Jem how to make McCoy's life important, but McCoy's life is not important to them, right? So there are two times that you're going to have like that verse that's in that same psalm (laughs) makes sense Mm -hmm. in this episode. But let's not do that one. Let's do the one that talks about the earthquake because we happen to have an earthquake happening right this second. Now – I don't know the Matthew verse that you pulled out. What is it? At the very end, uh, when they're back on the bridge and the, the three are discussing what happened, and Scotty chimes in with Matthew thirteen forty five forty six. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Um, okay. And again, I feel like it's a sort of a, a very – literal yes <laughs> you know regurgitation of what they called we her gem did. yes yes not yeah. not apparently because she was truly outrageous i would love <laughs> it if it was <laughs> no. actually that mccoy was just in the 80s cartoons i'm gonna call that her gem yeah she got yeah. the eye thing she got the purple no really <laughs> you guys never saw gem i know it's been 300 years but still uh, no, would have been truly prescient yes. they even throw away that part though because scotty does you know the whole thing about retelling his story without mentioning that it's from the Bible. And I feel like a, well, Mm -hmm. I was going to say a lapsed Christian, but let's face it. (laughs) I didn't realize that that was biblical, right? Yeah. But even there, once they do that, Kirk sloughs that off too. He's like, yeah, well, whatever. She was a gem. I mean, I mean, really he dismisses that idea. There's not, it's got all the trappings of something religious. It's got all the trappings of something that feels like it should be important or that wants to be important because it keeps throwing up all of these things that we're supposed to think are important. Right. But it just it, – it doesn't deliver. Now, I want to ask you, you really think the Kirk speech did not deliver? No, I, I thought that what he said mm-hmm. was, was perfectly fine, perfectly – Perfectly sound, mm-hmm. but I felt like it, you know. Again, we're, we're waiting for that moment to happen. It happened, and it's over in about two sentences. And we've kind of gotten it before. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have gotten it before. That's the thing. It's going to be hard to. It's going to be hard yeah. to rewrite the Kirk speech. I mean, you're going to have to come up with some really interesting situation where you can rewrite it and have it sound incredibly different because it's been done very well but it's also been done very many times i mean we've codified it now we call it the kirk speech because it happens so (laughs) often right um the other thing that this episode reminded me of was actually uh plato's stepchildren and it was in the kirk speech in this episode that i got that Mm. the kirk Mm. speech and you're right it doesn't take long so i've got the whole thing written right here (laughs) <laughs> uh, the Kirk speech in the empath, uh, if death is all you understand, here are four lives for you. We will not leave our friend. Uh, you've lost the capacity to feel the emotions you brought Jem here to experience. You don't understand what it is to live. Love and compassion are dead in you. You're nothing but intellect. We had a Kirk speech that was about the same length in Plato's stepchildren when they're being forced to either brand Nurse Chapel or whip uh, Uhura. Kirk turns to um, dude. 
I can't remember <laughs> dude's name, the head of the Plutonians, says, you're half dead, all of you. You've, you've been dead for centuries. We may disappear tomorrow, but at least we're living now, and you can't stand that, can you? You're half crazy because there's nothing inside, nothing, and you have to torture us to convince yourselves you're superior. Mm-hmm. Not the same motivation, but but a couple of the lines of each of those Kirk speeches are kind of the same, and he's really saying the same thing. It's like you 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 guys are so lost to thought at this point that you don't know what it is to feel. Um, yeah, right. It made me miss Plato's stepchildren. Although what's interesting is you and I liked Plato's stepchildren a lot more than a lot of people listening to this did. Yeah, yeah. I'm but, surprised uh, by that. Yeah, it really made me miss Plato's stepchildren. <laughs> it, it almost made me miss the Gorgon, honestly. This episode... This episode hurt. I, 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 I contemplated playing the voicemail that I left for you at the end of this episode. <laughs> right. And I realized right. there aren't enough bleeps in the world. Right. Yeah. But now we're now we're getting to the part where we uh did we have anything else we wanted to hit or should we should we Well, you know, there's one thing that I'd like to hit because I, I right. want to take the uh, the Vians to task on their uh, scientific methodology here. <laughs> Again? <laughs> because, Again well, or still? Well, just from a different tactic. All right, here, because ahead. I figure they're they're a very advanced race, mm-hmm. whatever they are, and they have all of these abilities. But um, it just so happens that I was listening to a uh, a science show, and they were talking about empathy. They were talking about the nature of morality and compassion and empathy and how these things work. And uh, they quoted a, a very interesting study from two thousand nine in which an fMRI was used to scan people's brains while they're presented with a moral quandary. And, you know, we've talked about those kind of things before. There's a train coming. You can throw the switch, and either it'll kill five people or it'll kill one person. Oh, but we're going to change the conditions of the test. Now that one person is your mother. All right, you know, so you fight with this. You, you wrestle with this. And what they found in the fMRI is that you are firing two parts of your brain, the the logical and the emotional at the same time. They're at war with each other. And the nature of the moral dilemma decides what side wins. So we go through our lives thinking that we are, we're able to kind of do this on our own. We're able to kind of control what our brain does. But actually when it comes to these difficult things, the, the brain, the parts of the brain are just fighting, 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 and then one side of it comes out to be the winner. That study was done by Joshua Green. He's the assistant professor of psychology at Harvard and director of the Moral Cognition Lab. You can look him up and uh, get a better idea of what they were doing. But what it comes down to is this, this theory that we inherit uh, very, very deeply from our pre-human past a sense of morality, sort of a proto-morality, and uh, portions of our brain then get to reenact that and fight that all the time. What is my point, Ken? My point is this. I, I don't think that morality and compassion are things that can just be zapped into a species all at once. It's an evolved trait. And Jem may have the capacity for it, but these aliens should know better. And they should back off. The lack of 1980s jokes tied to Jem in this episode of Mission Log is surprising. Turns out, having been the boys they were, John and Ken are not terribly familiar with the cartoon rock star. Had McCoy named the empath after one of the Thundercats, this episode would have been all 80s references all the time. 
Time now for the part of the episode where we ask about the messages, morals, and meanings of the given episode that we've discussed and whether those, uh, well, whether the whole thing actually stands the test of time. Gotta ask you, John, does this episode hold up? Uh, can I think the French have a word for it? And that word is no. <laughs> um, <laughs> here's the thing. I'm sorry, wait, I don't speak French. Can you translate that for me? Oh, I'm sorry, in English, that's no. Oh, okay. Uh, wow. In a word, no. They're similar. Um, They're similar, aren't they? They are. They are. They, yeah, mm. they share a common word. <laughs> um, I, I, here's the thing. We, we have explored the idea of the logical mind needing to be tempered by compassion and I was much more interested in that story in episodes like The Changeling or, you know, pick pick any number of other episodes. Uh, even Arena. Arena is about compassion and sacrifice and uh, uh, evolving to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've done this before uh, and we've done it better. I, I feel like no, Twilight Zone is another one of my all-time favorite shows, and it was a consistently great show. But every now and then, there was a clunker, and the only thing you were waiting for was the reveal, the, the, the secret at the end that was holding the show together, and everything else just felt like a drag. This, as a production, was paced in a similar way. Yeah. It's just a lot of waiting, waiting, waiting. We could have done the whole thing in you know, a half-an-hour episode. And that's allowing time for commercials, too. As you pointed out, this is a story that is trying very hard to be profound and provocative. Uh, but I just don't buy it. You know, we already have our main three, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, for two and a half seasons now, exploring the idea of compassion in humanity. And it doesn't help us, the audience, to have an alien torturing another alien for exactly the same thing. Um, I also feel like the style didn't work. Uh, it, it worked better in Spectre of the Gun, uh, where he had the minimal set. Uh, it worked better in The Squire of Gothos, where uh, Kirk is on trial in Trelane's mock courtroom. Um, and I just yeah. felt like the acting here didn't help either. There are good moments, but overall, um, does it hold up? No, no. That, that, you know, I have a lot of notes on that, and I'm... I'm sure you do too. What uh, what's your feeling, Ken? Well, no, not not for a moment. Does it hold up? Yeah. I mean, it's. I, I think I said um, in the in uh, wink of an eye that I kept being surprised that it was almost over. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kept being surprised that this episode wasn't. <laughs> right, Every yeah. time I watched it, it'd be like, "Well, seriously, we're we're, we're we're I feel like we're getting further away from the beginning. I mean, from the end of this episode rather than mm-hmm. closer to it." Um, the minimalist thing, and I wondered if this was about the sort of the the, the crap budget for season three. Mm-hmm. The minimalist thing, Inspector of the Gun, that may have been dictated by a lack of um, uh, a lack of um, budget. I don't know, but they took that and made something out of it. Um, yeah. In Squire yeah. of Gothos, I don't believe that that was lack of budget at all. I think I, I've always thought that's actually one of my favorite shots from everything that we've seen so far in Star Trek. Very mm-hmm. rarely do they use the set to an effect. Very rarely do they use lighting to an effect, uh, you know, like to actually to actually tell part of the story. I mean, they light things certain ways. And, 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 and when they do, it's really amazing. When, when Chekhov is leaning in about to rape the Klingon on that episode that I can't remember. I mean, seriously, I might as well just be making stuff up. I don't remember the character. I don't remember the episode's name. But 
I think we know the part I'm talking about, the shot I'm talking yes. about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The lighting on that was incredible. Same thing with the Squire of Gothos. This, to me, felt like we got nothing. We're not allowed mm-hmm. to have anything. So we're going we're gonna to light it. I mean, when they, like, when they like walk and then sort of take a left, and there's no reason to take a left there. It's just to establish that they're walking a distance. I mean, the production is sort of terrible. The, the aliens make you miss the Talosians. I mean, it's just there's it's uh, it's just bad. And then you, you top the whole thing off with, you know, was it Psycho Killer by uh, Talking Heads? <laughs> right. You're talking a lot, but you're not saying anything. That is yeah. that is this episode to me in a nutshell. Yes, yeah. it would be great if you had yeah, the whole idea of the empath is OK, except she's not even empathetic. She's got superpowers. There's a difference between feeling somebody's pain and actually being able to take somebody's pain away. So let's call her something else. Um, no, it's, it just, it, mostly it just hurt. Now, I mean, again, there is stuff you can pull out, you know, uh, yes, the relationship between Kirk, Spock and McCoy, it's been established. It is kind of interesting to see each of them willing to lay down their lives for the other, but we know that we know that there's anything that any one of these guys would do for any one of these other guys. Any one of them is going to throw themselves into the volcano, under the bus, in front of the phaser, whatever, if it's going to save the other two. And that's right. always neat to see, but we've seen it. And we kind of yeah, want to see yeah. more at this point because to keep telling me that they love each other, well, I know that. And it's a right. wonderful thing, but I still know it. You can't just show me that every week. Right. Oh, golly. Really watch something else. It made me miss so many other episodes of Star Trek. That's that's really <laughs> right. what it comes down to. It made me, it yeah. made me miss that. And uh, I would imagine we've really upset somebody. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Before we ask them to write and tell us, though, is there a message, do you think? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I think there are messages throughout, but the problem is those messages have been done better elsewhere. Yeah. So it's an episode that celebrates loyalty and compassion. You know, we, we get the mini Kirk speech about that. Bravo. OK. Um, and, and the message that empathy and compassion and self-sacrifice are all good things. Uh, OK. Well, pretty much all the time. I, I'd agree with you. Might be able to take all of those to an extent where they wouldn't be. Um, and also, if you're in a position of power, don't get so logical that you forget to use compassion. Again, messages we've seen before that I liked played out better before because this whole thing felt so far removed, e- even though we're torturing our crew. All the action felt very removed, and therefore the consequences felt very removed. Um, so it, it was a sort of angering on that level. Um, did you find anything else in there? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you say all of those things, and they remind me of other things. You're right. These are, there's not a. These are things that we've heard different places, different times. Yeah. And yeah. you know, to say it's sort of. Yeah, like if you're going to try to impart compassion, have compassion, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that should be one of the messages that could be one of the messages, but that really goes back to, you know, the whole idea of living up to what you say you're going to be. And then that can be any number of things from the fiasco that you thought Cloud William and the end of uh, the end of that episode was. I can't remember the name of any episode except for the Corbomite maneuver. That's where it's done the best. Are you thinking about the Paradise Syndrome? Is that where Cloud William was when the old glory comes in in the middle of it? Oh, no, no, no. The Omega Glory. The Omega Glory. The Omega Glory. Yeah, see, I can say old glory, but not the Omega Glory. Right, yeah. That was an episode where they said, hey, you know, you say you want to be a certain way. We'll go ahead and be that way. The best time we've had that is a Corbomite maneuver. You say you want to be a certain way. Fine. This is how we're going to have to be. 
Um, that's kind of a similar episode here. You want to teach, you want to impart compassion, be compassionate. Okay. Mm -hmm. But you know, that boils down to, if you want to be a certain way, act that way. Or if you want to see these things happen, you know, you have to sort of act those things, but it's just done, you know, so kludgy yeah. and awful here. <laughs> and then, and then dressed up with a bunch of stuff that's supposed to make it seem like it's, you know, actually a thing when it's actually not a thing at all, in my opinion. Now, I imagine we've offended a lot of people. Hey, <laughs> this, hey, we, this we, is probably we somebody's we love. No, we're not kidding. But, you know, <laughs> but we didn't mean to offend you. That's the thing. This yeah. is probably somebody's favorite episode. If you get a case for why this is an excellent episode, you know, without calling us names, we would certainly love to hear from you. Uh, <laughs> Facebook, Skype and Twitter. The handle is Mission Log Pod. You can uh, call us 323-522-5641. Try to keep those a little bit more zippy because, well, because. 323-522-5641. You can email us and make the email as long as you want to because John reads those and God bless him. <laughs> Missionlog at Roddenberry.com. I do also read some of them. Missionlog at Roddenberry.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Upcoming episodes like John. Next week, it's Elon of Troyes. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I want you to do me a favor, give yourself a treat today, an app maybe, or a piece of candy. I have no doubt after this episode, you've earned it. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.